This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, good afternoon, folks. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Brickenridge with you on this Friday afternoon as we get set to head into the weekend. we got a lot more to get to in this hour, your phone calls as well. But I want to begin off the top in this hour with a closer look at the situation in Ukraine. And as best we can to try to read Vladimir Putin as he assesses the situation, which has obviously not gone well for him. And in terms of how Western nations react at this point, or react to what Putin might do, is going to be very, very important and how this all plays out. It's a fascinating piece up at The Atlantic today on how only NATO can save Putin. And it explains why Putin might be looking for some kind of a confrontation with NATO and why it's so important that we don't give it to him. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is Tom Nichols. He's the author of the new book, Our Own Worst Enemy. He's a contributing writer at The Atlantic, a professor of national security affairs at U.S. Naval War College. Tom Nichols, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. You know, frustration and paranoia can be a, a dangerous combination, especially with somebody like Vladimir Putin. To, to what extent right now can we get a read on his mindset, what he might be capable of in the coming days and weeks here? Um, it's hard to say. He's frustrated. He's angry. He's desperate. Uh, this whole thing was a complete um, bungle from the beginning. He really thought somehow that this was all going to be over um, at most in a week. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, here he is mired down with uh, stalled out on all of his axes of advance. And all he has left now is just punishing the Ukrainians for their defiance by um, essentially murdering them with artillery and shells and bombs. So, uh, you know, he's he's pretty desperate. And um, that, what that leads to next, um, it's hard to say. Well, yeah, I think it is. And that's there's an unpredictable element to all of this, clearly. But in terms of what Putin might hope to see or what he might try to orchestrate, how likely is it in your assessment that he might try to find a way of provoking NATO? Well, I think that's I think that he will. I think that's what he's doing now with these um, atrocities and war crimes that he's committing um, in part to, again, as I said, to punish the Ukrainian people, um, but also to see if he can draw the foul, to see if he can bring uh, NATO closer into a conflict. Uh, because what he had hoped for, as I said, was have this thing over with, present it as a fait accompli to the rest of the world and sort of dare them to try to undo it. Now, because it's not happening, he needs to turn this for, for a lot of reasons. He needs to turn this into a conflict with NATO. That gives him cover at home. I mean, he is a dictator, but he has to worry about the home front. That would squash internal dissent, even at the, the most senior ranks of his government. Um, it would allow him, I think, to make even wilder threats than he's made now, uh, you know, to try to, to um, keep the, the world off balance by resorting to nuclear threats. Um, I think there's a lot of ways in which bringing NATO into this fight um, serves his purposes in a way that it might not have if he were able to do this very quickly. But now that he's now that this thing has turned into a mess, I think he actually is seeing some value in that. And that's why he keeps kind of turning the screws here uh, in a lot of ways. And that's why we might see him even try to resort to some kind of false flag uh, operation with with chemical weapons. Well, there are a lot of voices, and maybe we can say well-meaning or well-intentioned voices in the West who maybe want to be the ones to, to move first here. Because we're seeing this destruction in Ukraine, it feels to a lot of people like we're, we're just watching it all happen and that we need to, to do something. We need to set up a no-fly zone or we need to you know directly attack Russian columns or something. I mean, this all is, is tantamount to NATO declaring war on Russia. This essentially then gives Putin what he wants then, isn't it? Yeah, and that's part of the problem with um, expressions like these very clinical and very <clears throat> careful expressions like a no-fly zone. Um, that sounds great to us, but 
people have to remember that means flying into Ukraine and engaging enemy targets that engage anybody trying to enforce the no-fly zone. And that means engaging other pilots in the air, and it means engaging any threats from the ground against the no-fly zone. Um, you know, as a just as a reference point, when we um, and Britain instituted a no-fly zone over Iraq, um, the Iraqis fired on those aircraft over 700 times over the years uh, from the ground. Right. And so the idea that you're not going to end up killing Russian pilots and killing Russians on the ground, uh, that's a that's just delusional. I mean, if people are talking about doing that, then they need to um, I mean, there are arguments to be made for it. President Zelensky wants it. The Ukrainians, the Ukrainian parliament wants it. But if, if we're going to debate that here in the in um, in the West, then we really need to be clear about what it is we're talking about. I guess we need to understand maybe Cold War history or post-World War II history, because even if, if the average Russian doesn't understand what this invasion of Ukraine is all about, and maybe they're not on board with it, you know, the, the idea of NATO as an adversary, or even Germany specifically as, as an adversary, that, that, that still packs a lot of weight in a Russian context. Help us understand that. Yeah, the, the Russian people, um, going back even to the Soviet times, um, NATO was always used as a kind of boogeyman. NATO became kind of shorthand for all of the, you know, the, the most dangerous people in the West, including the Germans. I mean, there was always in the Soviet days, and you have to remember, Putin is an artifact of the Soviet period. Um, there was always uh, the, the Soviet accusation that NATO was just cover for the Germans and their, their fantasies of revenge against the Soviet Union from World War II. It was all complete nonsense, of course, um, but it didn't stop them from making it. And I think that's exactly the line Putin will take. Um, I, I would even bet that if NATO were involved and Germany somehow stayed out of the military action, that the Russians would even falsify um, or, or fabricate images of, um, of the uh, Germans being involved because it does pack a very visceral cultural punch for, for the average Russian. But of course, recognizing all of this and approaching this cautiously and prudently is not the same as doing nothing, because obviously we don't want Putin to succeed here. We do fear, uh, you know, the carnage that might ensue as, as maybe they, they begin to increase bombardment of cities and, and civilian areas. So are we doing enough or is, is there more we can do short of, you know, crossing that line? Yeah, and I think that's a great question because I think people have fallen into this idea that somehow because we're not doing a no-fly zone, therefore we're doing nothing. Um, if you look at what the Biden administration has just asked for in terms of weapons to send to Ukraine, it's a lot. I mean, we're talking about um, you know thousands of weapons that are going to be um, a real problem for uh, everything from Russian aircraft to Russian armor uh, to Russian soldiers on the ground. We're giving the Ukrainians the tools to to fight this war. Um, and these are really good tools. And the Russians are plenty mad about it already. They've already, uh, I think, just today said they would consider shipments of those arms to be legitimate targets, which I ex expected them to say. And I don't think we really ought to be moved by that. Um, but um, that's, that's a long, a far cry from doing nothing. What's your read on, on the China angle here? And on a day where we had uh, President Biden on the phone for two hours, we understand, with China's president, the day after, apparently Russia's foreign minister was on his way to Beijing and then suddenly turned around and, and flew home. Uh, you know, maybe China doesn't want to be too attached to this. I mean, China might want, though, a, a beholden to Moscow uh, coming out of this whole situation. So they've got their interests. What, what do you think it means for this whole situation? Well, I'm not a China expert, but I think a couple of things are clear. One is that um, as a an autocracy as an authoritarian state, um, you know, China's heart is with Putin, but their head uh, may be telling them something else that, mm -hmm. um, you know, that this is still a country that now I think their bigger priority right at this moment is probably COVID, which seems to be breaking out again in China, um, getting their economy back on the ground, maintaining their supply chains and getting their um, getting growth back up. And Putin has really just kind of scrambled that deck. And, and um, you know, I mean, we have a major war going on in Europe that has um, messed up a lot of things for people, for countries like China that just kind of want to get on with uh, the business of business. Um, I think as well, China, you know, has tried for years to cultivate this 
sense that they are a good citizen in on the global stage, even while they threaten Taiwan and right. um, do a lot of kind of ugly things. They have always uh, tried to make this argument that, you know, China cares about the rule of law and sovereignty and international institutions. Um, so it's it puts them in a difficult spot to say, yeah, we care about all that stuff, except in this case um, where we think it's OK to you know engage in war crimes. So. I don't think we should expect anything dramatic from the Chinese right now, but I guess maybe the one small bright spot is they don't seem to be particularly enthusiastic about getting out and publicly supporting Putin either. Which is maybe a small victory. I mean, ultimately just means further isolation for Vladimir Putin. How, how important do you think that's going to be as we look to, to hopefully find some resolution in the coming weeks here? Well, it is, you know, um, it, it really is an achievement to say that you have become so odious and horrible um, that even the Chinese are thinking about maybe, you know, putting a, a couple of feet of distance between you. Um, Putin has really achieved something when it comes to the international community. He has reinvigorated NATO. He has reminded liberal democracies why they are what they are and why they cooperate with each other and why they have alliances and institutions. Um, I think the danger here, uh, you know, I was having a conversation with a colleague who's all, uh, also a very good Russia specialist, and we both kind of wondered about the, the paradox that the worse Putin does, the more dangerous things become um, because he is more isolated and the economic, the, the um, international community has basically turned out a lot of the lights on the Russian economy in, in the space of a week or two. Um, so that's going to make him more desperate. But I think that's the that's the only weapon we have that we can really bring to bear here. Um, but it, but the way that Putin has united the world against him and the Russian regime, and I, I say the regime because I think most Russians probably don't support this war, um, is really impressive. I mean, he has really undone 30 years of Russian accomplishments since the end of the Cold War um, and, and taken that country um, backward in almost every way that matters now. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Professor Nichols, your latest, as mentioned, important read up at TheAtlantic.com. Appreciate you making some time for us here today. Thanks so much. Thank you. All the best. That's uh, Tom Nichols, uh, contributing writer at The Atlantic, also their newsletter, Peacefield. He's a professor of National Security Affairs at the U.S. Naval War College, author of several books, his latest, Our Own Worst Enemies. So some thoughts from him on, you know, approaching all of this cautiously and prudently and not throwing Putin a lifeline, even though we might not see it that way. I think that's what he's hoping for at this point. So this is going really badly for him. And I think we need to keep that in mind. Even as we see, you know, these images out of Ukraine every day that, that do pull at those those heartstrings almost. That, you know, we have all of this firepower. And I say we collectively as NATO, because clearly we as, as a country don't. But we got all of this NATO firepower at our disposal. We're not using it. There's a reason why. Listen, we'll take a time out here. We'll come back at some time for your phone calls in this hour. We'll talk a bit more about Canada's military capability and why it matters since both China and Russia have increasing designs on the Arctic. What will the government do to immediately address this situation? Canada's supply chains are still reeling from the BC floods from COVID-19 and now a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Canada, Canadians' best interests need to be prioritized. I am here in Calgary. I am urging the parties to reach an agreement. Our government is committed to ensuring the reliability and the efficacy of our supply chains that support Canada's economy right across all sectors. Well, good afternoon, folks. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you. That was the exchange in the House of Commons today. Conservative MP Marilyn Gladue asking the federal government what they are prepared to do with regard to this CP Rail labor dispute. Workers are off the job, and there's a lot of concern for what this disruption could mean for the economy. As you heard uh, the labor minister say, say, Seamus O'Regan, that he is in Calgary, and the government is trying to, to facilitate a solution here. And I think that's their preference. But there is growing pressure on the federal government to consider some back-to-work legislation and some binding arbitration here. There was a press conference earlier featuring a uh, number of agricultural groups, the Canadian Cattlemen's Association and the National Cattle Feeders Association are calling in the immediate introduction of back-to-work legislation following the work stoppage at CP Rail. You know, we're expecting our economy to deal with a lot of shocks right now and, and to still come out of it on the positive side of things. But, but here's another one that we're asking the economy to deal with. And, and how much more can the economy take here? 
So this is not a situation that, that we can let drag out. The economic uh, follow could be considerable. Joining us to talk about the potential impact to the economy and what can be done to deal with the situation. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Dennis Darby, who's president of Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters. Dennis, good to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Yes. How, how are you doing today? It's, uh, well, doing all right. A, I mean, a, obviously, quite an agenda. Quite an agenda. Yeah, no kidding. A lot of concern about this situation. So what's your sense of where, where this is at? Uh, are you optimistic of, of a short-term resolution here at this point? Well, I think, I think the manufacturing sector, which, you know, which comprises about three-quarters of what we export to the U.S., you know, needs, this to be op- needs to be optimistic because this is really affecting will affect very quickly our ability to, you know, to, to trade with our biggest partner, but also to be able to, to, uh, to keep supply chains moving. I think others have said we just don't have the capacity in our supply chain system as it's been hit over and over again in the last two years to deal with yet another, you know, another stoppage. And uh, this, is, this will have impacts, you know, as you've heard, on, uh, not just on commodities, but certainly within days on manufactured goods. Yeah, we'll talk a bit about why why rail is such an important component uh, of the supply chain and why this affects all kinds of different sectors. Well, yeah, so about, about half of our manufactured goods, about, you know, so, so we trade about a billion and a half dollars a day with the U.S. in manu, uh, manufactured goods. About half of it goes by rail. Part of it is because of you know, large quantities or large materials, or, uh, but, it, but it's also an effective way to get things from port uh, to market. And so, so we can imagine the situation now. We're, we're going to we can see within probably you know, days, you know, containers backing up at ports, and those are con- components or materials or ingredients that that we would use, and also vice versa, stuff that Canadian manufacturers will sell it to our partners abroad. So, it, it's really important. Rail is is a very important part of our of our uh, of our industrial economy and a critical part of our trade corridors. And I think that's that's you know, and hopefully it's not lost on the government. And we've been very clear to the federal government you need to you know use your powers and that and i think you know back to work legislation is probably required the parties have been uh, back and forth for some period of time and we know the government has been party to those discussions now i think it's time for them to act well and not just the disruption to the supply chain but even you know the the broader ramification that if if canada's reputation uh, as as a reliable trade partner is is affected here. That that's got some much broader consequences, doesn't it? Well, exactly. I mean, we you know, I mean, we, the pandemic was one thing, and the, the you know, and the issues with containers were another thing, and of course, the natural disasters. And everyone understands that. But you know, the the blockades we had at the borders. Well, you know, that's really like we we're scoring our own net there. We were like we were we were hurting ourselves in terms of our trading relationship. And this kind of looks the same. It's kind of like, okay, this is not something caused by the pandemic or caused by a natural disaster. You know, we just have to be, we have to be a, if we're going to convince the Americans that they, you know, are really serious about reshoring production in uh, the U.S. and we want them to reshore some of that to North America, including us, you know, we've got to show them that there were, we're, we're a place, you know, you can rely on to deliver on time. And our system, because we're so integrated with the U.S., our system requires manufacturers to be able to get stuff from point A to point B, you know, as, you know, as fast as, you know, as fast as the supply chain normally lets them. And you can't, we can't really talk, we can't deal with, well, we can deal with it, but to our peril, we can't deal with more of these kinds of uh, bottlenecks and delays because it adds, you know, consumers to it because you see that the, at the grocery store shelf, or the, you know, or, in, or at the home, the home hardware, you're going to see prices go up because you know stuff's in short supply. Yeah. Well, even before this whole situation, I mean, you mentioned some of the the uh, supply chain issues we have already been dealing with. What, what are you hearing from your members? I mean, what? How, how widespread are these supply so, chain so we, challenges? So interesting. Just you know, just as the just as the blockades at the the, the border points in Alberta, Manitoba, and, uh, and Ontario were ended, we, yeah. we decided to go out and we pulled normally to our, our members, and we pulled them. And it was, of course, just before the war in Ukraine and obviously before this. But 9 out of 10, 90% of them have had supply chain disruptions, uh, and, and Royal being one of the biggest ones. But on top of that, uh, it's costing them money. I mean, their estimates, the estimates across the manufacturing sector is that in terms of you know extra costs and 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 lost businesses, cost them you know ten billion dollars in the last year, and that's you know that's significant. It's a, it's a six hundred billion dollar a year industry, but still that's a huge amount of of, of extra costs in the system. And I think uh, and that's because of the of the things that have happened. Yeah, you know, like we said, some of them because of the pandemic and some because of disaster. But uh, this is certainly something that, that you know just adds to that you know, adds to that you know uh, issue, and certainly. Uh, 
it really hampers our recovery, the recovery of our economy. Well, it does. So there is some urgency to this. I, I know the government's hoping for the two sides to work this out. I, I don't know to what extent they're prepared to be patient, but this comes at a cost. I mean, every day that this drags on, there's a cost to the economy. So where, where would you peg the level of urgency at here? I would say this is, I can't think of, I mean, I, I mean, within Canada, what's going on right now is probably the most important thing we have to do. And we, you know, this, our Canada is a, as a country and, you know, and you, you, we know it out in, in Alberta, we know it here in Ontario. You know, we depend on exports. We depend on being able to get our goods to market. Canada's economy, about 33% of our economy is export. We're much different than the U.S., which is a much smaller percentage of their overall economy. We need to be able to move goods around. And I think uh, there's nothing more important than making sure those trade corridors are open. And I think, you know, comments have been made, and we've been suggested to the government, they need to find a way to make these critical trade corridors, you know, uh, have some kind of special status so they can't be stopped, you know, you know, by, uh, and, and I think almost like a, uh, you know, as a critical infrastructure. I think that the time has come. We have to really consider that. Uh, notwithstanding, you know, the issues between employers and unions, but there has to be a different way that still allows for that process to go on, but that prevents, you know, groups or individuals from blocking our trade corridors. It's just too critical for this economy. Absolutely. Well, we'll, we'll hope for some quick resolution here. We'll see how it all plays out, Dennis. I'm hopeful. Yes, absolutely. Appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for this. Take care. All the best. Uh, Dennis Darby, president of uh, CME, Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters, representing, as the name implies, manufacturers and exporters, and they're obviously worried about the impact from this. You know, similar to what we saw with the border blockades recently, even similar to what we saw two years ago with rail blockades, this all has economic consequences. And on top of a, an economy that's already strained by all sorts of supply chain issues, this, this really comes at a terrible time. Now, certainly in the agriculture industry, as alluded to, they're really worried about this, not just the disruption, but the timing of all of this. So you had at this uh, press conference this afternoon, this is uh, James Beckering, who's uh, chair of the National Cattle Feeders Association. So they're relying on CP Rail to ship corn from the U.S. to feed their animals. And for some feedlots, they're down to a two-week supply of feed remaining. Got the anxiety levels up quite high amongst uh, cattle feeders, um, for sure. Any any uh, further delay, I guess, in, in, in it, in the supply, um, you know, we're not looking forward to what, what happens when we run out because um, we don't have a contingency plan. Right, exactly. What are they supposed to do? So it's not just about, okay, some, some stuff is sitting there and it can't move from point A to point B. Well, when you're talking about the stuff that needs to move, that's necessary to keep these animals alive, that's pretty serious. So that, that speaks to the urgency of the whole situation, why agriculture groups in particular are so worried about this. And then you got the spring seeding coming up. Farmers need fertilizer. They can't get their fertilizer. Well, then what are they supposed to do? So, look, and, and I think people at some level want to be sympathetic. I don't think CP workers are, are just trying to, you know, line their pockets and, and get rich off of this. I don't know if it would be fair either, though, to turn around and say the company's just being greedy. Look, I suppose both sides maybe have some legitimate uh, points here, legitimate beefs here, or grievances. But at the end of the day, I think that's all kind of a moot point. If you've got less than two weeks uh, of feed supply, for your livestock, and you know what the hell you're going to do, I don't know that you care all that much about what the Teamsters say and what CP Rail says. Figure it out. And if you can't, then get somebody who will, as in some kind of uh, arbitration here. Well, not since Ralph Klein, as an Alberta premier, won an election and then won the subsequent election. In fact, only Rachel Notley can at least claim that she won an election and was able to contest the next election as leader. Of course, she didn't win re-election. So it's possible that this trend could continue. It's possible that Jason Kenney could join Ed Stelmack and Alison Redford on the list of premiers who won an election and didn't survive as leader until the next election. Which, when you think about the run that Jason Kenney was on, 2017, 2018, 2019, uh, it would be pretty shocking. But that's what could happen come April 9th or thereabouts. 
Now, as you're probably well aware, Jason Kenney is facing a leadership review. As you're probably quite aware, there is uh, certainly a devoted set of UCP members led, at least maybe in a spiritual sense, by Brian Jean. I don't know that he professes to, to speak for all of the discontents in the party, but maybe he most visibly embodies them, uh, that they very much want Jason Kenney out. And it just seems like this entire party is consumed by this, which is a little awkward given that they're also the governing party of the day. Seems like a big distraction, certainly when it comes to to uh, issues affecting this province. Uh now, there's some interesting developments unfolding today, and it sounds as though some rule changes might be coming ahead of this April 9th leadership review, which we're awfully close to. Now, the cutoff to buy a membership to vote was this past weekend. The numbers, by the way, are pretty massive, at least when you compare it to, to previous uh, party contests. There's some talk now that instead of an April 9th vote in Red Deer, it might be a vote that's spread out over various locations, spread out over a few days, which was something that uh, the premier himself was was initially quite opposed to. So some interesting uh, twists and turns still in this saga. Uh, joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program a veteran observer himself of uh, Alberta politics, Dwayne Bratt, uh, professor of political science at Mount Royal University. Dwayne, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, we've seen our share of drama in Alberta politics over the last dozen years, but when we reflect on just this, this whole situation, it does feel still rather unprecedented. Would you agree? Yeah, unprecedented is, is an overused word. Yes, <laughs> Unfortunately, it is, it is unprecedented. Um, can he hold on? I, we've been asking that for a year. Uh, and there's been lots of, of moments. So if we just think about the leadership review, originally it wasn't scheduled at all. And then there was a, a showdown um, with his uh, caucus, and there looked like there was going to be a, um, a, a caucus non-confidence vote of him. And that's when he announced, okay, we're going to have this in uh, fall of uh 2022. So, you know, another six six months from now. And this was in spring of 2021. Then there was a subsequent showdown in caucus in the fall of 2021 after the open for summer debacle. And he said, all right, we'll move it to April. Right. So instead of having it tied to our regular AGM in fall of 2022, we're now going to move it to April of uh, 2022. And that seemed to satisfy people and, and calm things down. And then there was a group of constituency association presidents that wanted it moved into December or to January of, of this year. And they signed a letter and it followed all of the procedures of the UCP constitution that one quarter of these presidents uh, could trigger that. This went to the board and the board seemed to not accept it. Uh, they w wouldn't re really explain why. Uh, there were some veiled references to how the process of how they gathered the signatures was inappropriate and, and some other procedural flaws. And so they voted to, to move it to or keep it at, at April or decide to move it to, to April. Uh, there was even a, a motion at the AGM back in the fall uh, to increase the threshold of how many CA presidents uh, could could call for an emergency meeting. So this drama has been going on for a year, and yeah. now we're getting closer and closer to April 9th, and then the drama just seems to be kicking in, because originally it was Red Deer, and you had to show up and vote. And that seemed to be designed to benefit Jason Kenney that um, his organizational skills um, would allow him to, to control this, given that there's nothing else going on, right? There's no AGM, there's no panels, there's no speeches, you just go and vote, that it forced everybody outside of Red Deer to drive. So are you going to drive from Calgary? Are you going to drive from Grand Prairie? Are you going to drive from Fort McMurray? Um, and then we started to see 2,000 people registering. 
and 4,000 people registering. And now it's up to 14,000 people registering with a possibility of 20,000. And there's no way the convention center in Red Deer could handle that amount of people. I mean, it's just such a logistical and, and quite frankly, a safety concern. So now they're having to uh, make adjustments. The problem is because of everything I just previously described, it looks like the rules are being changed once the uh, the membership sales ended, uh, there is some speculation that the Kenny team knew the rules were going to change, um, and uh, and we still don't know what those new rules are. It, it may occur over multiple days. It may occur in multiple locations. We're here in Calgary, Edmonton, Red Deer, but why not Medicine Hat? Why not Grand Prairie? Why why not Fort McMurray? Why not virtually? Why not move it a bit later and continue to have membership sales? So there's there remains a lot of confusion about what is what is and what is not going to happen on April ninth. Right, and certainly, I mean, you know, as as leader of the party, I mean, Jason Kenney's certainly got some influence over all of this uh, in, in wanting, I guess, the scenario that maybe is most likely to, to help his cause. But in terms of these numbers, he's not really in control of that. I don't know if this necessarily represents bad news for him or good news for him. What's your read on, on that? I think he sees it as bad news. Um, and, um, and the reason for that is you just look at some of the behavior uh, of the of the premier and the premier's office. So, uh, Pam Livingston, his chief of staff, taking a, a leave of absence mm-hmm. um, to uh, direct the the pro Kenny forces. Then uh, Brock Harrison, his director of communications, uh, announced that he was going to take a leave of absence to do the same. And then leaked emails from the premier's office uh, to staffers, political staffers, not civil servants, but political staffers. Uh, asking and then telling them to take time off work and do multiple eight-hour shifts, um, um, ostensibly for, for, for Jason Kenney. And so those data points start to suggest that he, he saw himself in a lot of trouble. So if you see someone in a lot of trouble who then takes measures to change the rules, you're wondering how fair a fight this is. And, and quite frankly, there's not a lot of trust among within the UCP. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of people who would never support the UCP, hate the UCP, throwing darts at this. I'm more interested in the people who are part of the party, were part of the party, and are upset by this. There's another story, too, that came out of last week, and, and it involves uh, a pollster in Alberta, Janet Brown. I know you know Janet quite well, and I've spoken with Janet many times. I, I see today even the Canadian Research Insights Council, which represents uh, the research, <clears throat> analytics, and polling industry, they put out a statement condemning the UCP. It appears as though, in a, I guess, a desire to, to push out some favorable poll numbers, the UCP apparently leaked a, a poll, a confidential poll, uh, that Janet Brown had done, much to her chagrin. I mean, what, what did you make of that whole episode? So it, it ties directly to what we are talking about earlier as well, those data points. So Janet does this private poll for subscribers called Wild Ride. And uh, it's, it's not to be publicly released because she's doing it for clients, and that's why they pay her for this instead of waiting to read about it for free in the, in the newspaper. And she came up with numbers that showed uh, the UCP ahead of the NDP in the horse race numbers for the first time in almost two years. And it showed a slight increase in the approval rating of Jason Kenney. Her numbers are out of step with a lot of other polls, but Janet also has a really good reputation in the province of Alberta uh, for the accuracy of her polls. She does a very complex, complicated, expensive, time-consuming methodology that others don't use. Um, And as a result, she's gotten right a lot more than she's gotten wrong. And she's also been able to find what we call shy Tories. And and, uh, typically, other polls underrepresent conservative support, and Janet hasn't. So when her private poll comes out showing this good news for for Kenny, some some good news, some not so good news for him, Uh, the UCP party is a subscriber. They wanted her to publicly release this. 
And she wouldn't for, you know, because it is uh, private um, uh, intellectual property and it's for subscribers only. And that's the core of her, her business. And they pressured her to do so. She refused. And now we know that they leaked it anyway. Um, and they leaked out the most advantageous numbers first to kind of set the narrative um, then they released the rest of the poll. And uh, then in, in, in response, Janet went public with the pressure that the Premier's office had placed on her. And Dodd Braid wrote a great column for Saturday about that. And um, it, it illustrates some of the, the backdoor dealings that, that are going on behind the scenes. I mean, it's just how high the stakes are. I mean, you know, as I said earlier, I think, you know, right now, this government is entirely consumed by this. It feels like every announcement, every decision, every tweet from the premier is with April 9th in mind. And that's because it is. Yeah. Um, you know, the tax rebate, uh, gas tax rebate, when, when does that kick in? Not today, not two weeks ago, but April 1st. Mm -hmm. Right. So you can see it closer to April 9th. When do the checks go out for electricity? Early April. So you get your check just before you you drive to, to Red Deer. Um, <clears throat> so I, I think that's correct. Uh, absolutely correct. And it's not just Kenny. I mean, if Kenny were to le lose his job, you know, he's still well established. He's got a financial nest egg. Um, he, he'll do OK. Uh, but a lot of those staffers are younger. They may have young families. Um, they don't have very good job security. If the leader goes, there's a lot more people behind the leader who also lose their jobs. And we've seen this um, when when Daniel Smith crossed the floor. You know, we've seen this with, with other leadership changes. And so that is why I think there is, there is panic, not just within Jason Kenney, but within the entire premier's office. All right, well, we'll see how it all plays out this week. As you say, the party might uh, have some announcements to make regarding this whole process, and it's going to be an interesting few weeks. Dwayne, appreciate the uh, perspective. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Okay, you're welcome, Rob. All the best. Uh, Dwayne Bratt, professor of political science, Mount Royal University, his thoughts on all of this. Look, I mean, Kenny's in, in the fight of his political life. I don't think there's any denying that, whether you like the guy or don't. Like, this is very much up in the air, how this is going to go on April 9th. Now, if you want Kenny out, then then maybe you're happy about that. If you want Kenny to survive, maybe you're worried about that. Uh, right now, it's going to fall to these party members to make that decision. And, and those numbers have swelled considerably. As, Don, as uh, Dwayne Brad said just a few weeks ago, you know, 2,000, we were expecting 2,000 or so to vote on April 9th. Well, now that's over 14,000. And I don't think they're done processing all of the, uh, the, the membership purchases that came in from the weekend. So that number could grow even higher. You're going to have all of those people converge on Red Deer on April 9th? I don't know. So it does sound as though what we're hearing today, uh, that the party's looking at spreading that out, both geographically but also spreading it out over a few days. Certainly, you know, Putin's invasion of Ukraine has achieved a lot of things, and maybe not what, what Putin anticipated in terms of, you know, strengthening uh, the NATO alliance, forcing NATO and Western countries maybe to rethink security and defense policy. Now, to what extent, though, is that happening here in Canada? I think a lot of aspects of this are and should be a wake-up call. There's one aspect that's maybe not directly related to the invasion of Ukraine, but it's, it's something that we should be thinking about now because it does involve Russia. Frankly, it also involves China, and it's the question of Arctic sovereignty. Now, the Arctic might seem a long way from, you know, the conflict in Europe. The Arctic is certainly a long way uh, from uh, Taiwan, you know, where China might uh, look to, to, uh, to invade. But both of these countries have their eyes on the Arctic. Certainly Russia has uh, very much been investing in having a presence, having capabilities in the Arctic. And interestingly, China is now referring to itself as a near-Arctic state. That in other words, they see strategic interests in the Arctic. So hopefully... This has been a big wake-up call in Ottawa because we definitely need to up our game when it comes to asserting our sovereignty in the Arctic. 
So what needs to be done and how important is this issue? Well, somebody who's done a lot of research uh, on this uh, very topic, written much about it, is uh, on the line with us here, Rob Hubert, a professor of political science at the University of Calgary with a research uh, focus on Arctic issues and Arctic sovereignty. Professor Hubert, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, it's always my privilege, Rob. Uh, like I say, I mean, we might not directly link the Arctic and issues around Arctic sovereignty to everything coming out of this invasion of Ukraine. But really, I, I think on the question of rethinking security, the importance uh, of, of sovereignty, this this should be at the top of the list of priorities, shouldn't it? Well, actually, not to contradict you too much, but on the first one, it's completely linked. Remember, Putin uh, it reissued that statement in terms of the threat of using nuclear weapons. Right. And, of course, everybody took that sort of a back. He's, he has stated that before. The reason why it then ties it to the Arctic directly is that if you look at the bulk of the Russian forces, and, and particularly where he's got his greatest strategic strengths, and that is the ability to engage beyond just such as what we're seeing in Ukraine, Georgia, or Chetnya, is in the northern section, the Kola Peninsula. And so... As soon as he starts threatening using nuclear weapons in some region, that immediately means that any of the nuclear forces and our ability to detect them has to be at the forefront, and the way we do it is in the Arctic. So, in other words, it is completely tied together. Well, it is, uh, but this has been an issue for a long time, obviously. I mean, you know, I think Canada has neglected Arctic sovereignty. Canada has relied quite heavily on the Americans when it comes to, to continental security, including the North. Uh, but why does this issue matter? Why is it so important that Canada lift its its, uh, its own weight here and assert our sovereignty in, in our own territory? Well, I mean, it's of critical importance to Canadian security because if we are the weak link, and the Nordic Arctic countries have been working hard since 2016 to rebuild their military capabilities in this region. Because remember, this, this war with Ukraine started in 2014. It did not start in February 2022. Everybody seems to be somehow forgetting that the Russians actually launched the invasion and seized eastern Ukraine and Crimea in 2014. The Europeans have been working hard. They've been, they've been redeveloping their air capabilities. They've been redeveloping their surveillance capabilities. And we're the ones that have just been saying, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. Our defense policy back in 2017 said, okay, we're, we're going to modernize NORAD. We're going to get a fighter that replaces the fighters that we got at the end of the 1970s. We're going to get new um, uh, frigate capability or surface combatant capabilities. But we haven't done any of that. And as a result, if we are moving forward in this new environment where I think the West has finally woken up to the series of aggressive actions that the Russians have taken, that in fact that it has to be that we have to be able to determine and be able to, uh, to have the surveillance necessary to meet the new types of weapon systems that the Russians have been developing. If you have any form of a conflict that escalates to conventional, to nuclear, it will then put the North in risk. And if we don't know what's happening, we cannot respond. And we also have to have the ability to respond to any threat. That's what even makes us even more of critical importance to move ahead. What about the China factor here? Um, you know, maybe the, the, the Russian element is, is more obvious when we talk about Arctic sovereignty, but now we've got China, and they refer to themselves as a near-Arctic country. They, they talk about strategic interest in, in the Arctic. Where, where is this coming from, and what, what does it mean for Canada? Well, I mean, China's the outlier. This is the one that's confounded so many people. When we had the Chinese icebreaker show up in Tukta in 1999, I mean, first of all, the reaction was the Chinese have an icebreaker, and second of all, what are they doing there? And I think that there was a lot of almost condescending attitudes. They're like, okay, they're up here one time. It's just to, to basically, they got a new piece of toy, and they're, 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 they're just, you know, showing off. But, I mean, the reality is that they have very concretely tried to integrate themselves as a Arctic player, particularly in, in regards to science and in regards to the governance system. They've made sure that they're at every agency, every organization, every treaty to include China. 
And what this seems to be completely connected to is their efforts to become a, a, a world power, or in, in the parlance of political science, a hegemon. But it, it, it really is a realization, and we see this with the fact that they now have the world's largest navy, not the most powerful navy, but in terms of numbers, they outnumber the, the American navy, and that they are planning to have worldwide uh, strategic interests. And, and obviously, that is going to include the Arctic for security purposes, but it's also going to include the Arctic in terms of their geoeconomics, because they, of course, as you know, I've heard you talk about it um, in, on your show and other segments, where the recognition that they have the Silk Road Initiative, which is clearly meant to tie them into other countries, Africa, Asia, and, and one of the routes that they will be developing is in the Arctic. And so all of this comes back to the fact that China is emerging as a direct challenger to the Americans as the leading power, and the Arctic is part of their calculations. How much? We have to wait and see in terms of just where their expenditures go and how much, but the indications are they're determined to be a player. Well, and certainly, you know, the Americans don't want that either, whether it's China or Russia, but... Why is that an insufficient basis uh, for, for Canada here to simply rely on American protection uh, to keep Russia and China influence out of the Arctic? Well, I mean, there's two factors. The Chinese are going to be there. And so Canada has to, first and foremost, it has to have a policy that it clearly can enunciate in terms of understanding what its interest is. One of the problems that we often hear Canadian politicians talk about Arctic sovereignty, though I always get the strong impression they don't have a clue of what they're really talking about when they're going. It's one of those sort of catchphrases. You could say, yes, I'm for Arctic sovereignty, and then you say, okay, well, what does that actually mean? It means controlling your resources, controlling the areas. And, I mean, to, the idea that you're going to rely on the Americans to ultimately do it for you, I mean, th th this is something that most Canadians, I think, would find somewhat problematic. And the Americans are seeing, we see this in all their documents and all their actions from about 217 onward, they see the Arctic as intrinsic to their security. In other words, they, they understand that both the Russians and possibly the Chinese can see the Arctic as sort of an entry point when we start talking some of their missile capabilities, some of their attack vectors, some of their aircraft. And, and that's really what we're talking about here. And so if we are not up there protecting Canadian Arctic security properly with tools that go beyond, say, the 19, late 1970 uh, F-18s or the 1985 uh, Northern Warning System, the Americans are going to do it for us. And they're going to do it in a way that favors American interests, not Canadian interests. And so this is why, you know, the government back in 2017 said, yeah, you know, we get it. We're, we're going to do all this. It's a fully costed defense budget, whatever that meant. And uh, we're, we're going to take care of it. But of course, as, as time has demonstrated, they haven't done anything. And so we run the risk of the Americans starting to take over there. The, the, the whole issue of what many have really been concerned in terms of the Arctic sovereignty but equal and probably more important, we, we risk putting ourselves vulnerable to an increasingly aggressive and some would say unstable Russia that does have a very modern suite of nuclear delivery systems that are Arctic focused. And so for both of those reasons, we need to get moving. Well, I guess, you know, we're going to have to work with the Americans on certain aspects of all of this, which obviously means NORAD. NORAD needs uh, modernization. That That's going to require some Canadian commitment on top of us establishing more of a presence there. So it's it's both unilateral and, and bilateral then, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Our defense, though, for North America has to be seamless. Um, the reason why is because the threat from the new missile technologies. I mean, most people have probably already heard about hypersonics, the type of maneuverability that some classes of hypersonics have. What isn't in the news so much are the, the Russian development of what's called the autonomous underwater vehicles. Um, all of this is beyond our capability to do by ourselves. By the same token, the geography of the Arctic makes it pretty difficult for the Americans to actually be able to do it all for themselves. 
The other part of the puzzle that we're going to have to get serious about, too, is also space assets. And this is a topic that Canadians don't want to talk about, but it's not just simply the surveillance, but actually the defensive capabilities. And then you start talking about missile defense. And I know that Canadians don't want to talk about that, but I think that the events in the last few weeks have demonstrated that we need to be talking about that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we'll see if uh, this does represent a wake-up call in terms of policymakers in the nation's capital. We'll leave it there for now. Professor Huber, thanks for the insight, and I appreciate you making some time for us here today. No problem. Well, always All my pleasure, Rob. Thanks. Uh, Rob Hubert, uh, professor of the uh, Political Science University of Calgary. He's also a senior fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute uh, and has written extensively on the issue of Canadian Arctic security. So maybe appreciating that everybody else is starting to wake up to this. Uh, I think he's been, you know, beating this drum for some time. Look, and, and obviously this matters. This matters to Canadian sovereignty, to Canadian strategic interests. More so now, maybe arguably, but, you know, this uh, issue didn't just arise overnight here. Uh, right now, look, obviously part of the fallout of this uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine has been... Uh, a shift in the conversation around energy and energy security. And maybe it it will be or should be anyway, a wake-up call in Canada to rethink our own position globally. Is it an opportunity for Canada to step up and fill some of the void as countries move to limit or ban Russian oil and gas exports? Now, it may well be that, you know, Canada is able to to slightly increase production in the short term, maybe ship a little bit more to the United States. But beyond that, we're kind of limited. So have we, have we boxed ourselves in a little bit here? Well, that's the conclusion in a, a new paper from the uh, McDonald Laurier Institute, that indeed we have boxed ourselves in with some tunnel vision when it comes to energy policy. That is a result of some maybe short-sighted policy choices, our ability to emerge as a bigger global energy player has been restricted. So joining us uh, to talk a bit more about this uh, this paper and where we find ourselves at this uh, pivotal moment, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, one of the authors of this paper, Jeff Kacharski, is a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute and an adjunct professor at Royal Rhodes University. Uh, professor Kacharski, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Rob. So as you assess the, the moment we're at here right now and, and the shift in you know energy policy, the rethink on energy security and, and some potential voids to be filled globally, what's your sense of how big an opportunity this could represent for a country like Canada? Well, I think, you know, as you mentioned uh, in your introduction, um, the crisis in Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine and the reliance of Western Europe on imports of Russian oil and gas have really highlighted uh, the importance of energy security and being essentially at the mercy of a country, an authoritarian regime that is very powerful uh, in terms of energy and is willing to use its supplies of energy almost as a weapon, uh, a tool of leverage against countries with which it uh, disagrees or wants to influence. Um, the problem is now Western Europe wants to wean itself off of Russian oil and gas, but they have few alternatives or few economic alternatives. And so um, now uh, they are looking to other parts of the world, friendly democratic countries, hopefully, uh, with supplies of oil and gas that could replace Russian supplies. But Canada is not in a position to to fill any of that void really other than, as you said, exporting more to the U.S., which would then potentially ship more to Europe. So it's a real conundrum. Unfortunately, we don't have the pipelines in place yet to do any meaningful exports. And so, um, uh, you know, we find ourselves at this important time unable to help the globe out with its energy security needs. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because some of the, the talk we're hearing out of Europe is that getting off of Russian oil and gas means somehow speeding up the transition to alternatives. But how realistic is that? Well, it's, you know, it's interesting because countries like Germany have been ramping up renewables now for uh, a number of years. Mm -hmm. um, but they are also uh, finding that the cost of renewable generation is very high, and that's helped make a German industry 
uncompetitive in many cases, and German consumers have begun to complain about energy prices. And so um, when there's a crisis in Germany, as there is, uh, then all of a sudden they realize that, uh, you know, because they can't use renewable power 24 hours a day, the sun and the wind don't always uh, shine and blow, Mm -hmm. they're still reliable on fossil fuels, particularly coal, but also nuclear power. And so uh, they've been unable really to reach their loftiest goals in renewables simply because they're facing a reality that a transition to clean energy takes a long time. It can't be done overnight. And when you have a crisis and energy, fossil fuel supplies are cut off, it really exacerbates the situation. Right. So there's some practical realities that, that countries need to confront. Is, is Canada also guilty, maybe, of, of ignoring some of those practical realities? Well, yeah, I think Canada and, and even, you know, the world more generally, you know, there's been almost a single-minded focus on uh, climate change, the climate crisis, so-called, and uh, the climate emergency, various terms used to help to put an almost exclusive uh, focus on dealing with climate change, which is real and it's important and we need to do that, but at the expense of thinking about energy security. So the result has been that we get, you know, uh, activist, uh, you know, investors and others pressuring boards and energy companies to reduce their fossil fuel, you know, E&P expenditures, exploration production, and, you know, advocating to leave uh, fossil fuel resources in the ground and so on and creating this sort of narrative that fossil fuels are bad, we need to get off them right away, but without, you know, admitting that, in fact, we can't do that immediately. And so when a crisis happens, like we have today, we realize, oh, my gosh, Uh, We've been focusing on climate change, but we weren't thinking about energy security enough. And this is what I think this crisis now here we're finding, which is a simult, which is an energy crisis happening at the same time we have a climate change crisis. Uh, We need to now put much more focus and uh, on energy security and think about both of these issues together. Yeah, and it's interesting because energy security is, I mean, it's at some level, it's its political, that there are political objectives around energy security policy. But when it comes to energy, we're, I mean, we're still talking about a commodity that, that is traded on the open market. So do those factors bump into one another? If, if political considerations demand that we focus on exports to, to Europe, for example, but the market is saying that doesn't make sense, we want to go west or we want to go south, how do we reconcile political objectives with, with market realities? Well, I think I think that uh, you know energy security is a political objective in that it's important to an economy um, because uh, an economy can't run without energy, and that means all kinds of energy. Um, so it's political in that sense. I guess it's also politically important globally when you have a crisis like we're seeing today because we want to make sure that our allies and partners have adequate supplies of energy so that they can face down, you know, an invader uh, in, a, in a friendly country. So, you know, this is where that flexibility needs to come into play. We need to have not only diverse sources of energy, but diverse ways of getting our energy offshore. And Canada just doesn't have that capability right now. We're building it to some extent much later than we should have, but um, it's not going to be available for a few more years yet. And so we're really kind of impotent right now to help out our allies and partners. Uh, and so our energy is really stuck within North America. You know, it basically goes uh, from Canada to the U.S. and almost nowhere else. And so we have limited options. Well, and I mean, the good news is it seems certainly the market forces are, are favoring exports as much as maybe energy security policy would. I mean, the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, for example, also the LNG Canada project very much focused on, on exports to new markets. So maybe there is some alignment there. Uh, so is, is that the kind of a, approach we need more of, you think? Well, yes, I think I think this this crisis is pointing out the fact that 
you know, we need to continue. Uh, these projects are already uh, underway, like you mentioned, uh, TMX and also the LNG Canada project, but also the pipelines that feed that uh, LNG Canada project, such as the coastal gas link. So that's the West Coast. Uh, right now, though, we lack capability for export on the East Coast. Now, there are some projects that have been proposed. There's even one that's under review. I think it's an LNG terminal uh, uh, on the East Coast. Uh, there's things that Canada could do to speed up that uh, approval, I'm sure. But, you know, we really need to look at both of our West and our East Coast in terms of building capacity to get our products offshore. That's going to have to mean some policy changes then, you think? Well, I think it's going to need it's going to need even more than policy. It's going to need some policy changes for sure in terms of speeding up regulatory approvals. I mean, if we are serious about addressing the energy security needs of the world and in particular our allies and partners, we're going to need to get some of these projects moving along quicker, not bogged down, um, so there can be some sped-up processes that way. Um, but, you know, I think also we need to look at um, just, you know, maximizing, you know, what we have in, you know, in place already, moving more uh, oil and gas through pipelines to the U.S., speeding up and removing obstacles to getting these West Coast uh, projects completed, um, and, you know, also promoting these projects on the East Coast uh, to be as quick as possible. Yeah. Well, this paper, it's called Reimagining Canada's Role in Global Energy Security. It's up at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Professor Kacharski, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Very welcome. Thank you. All the best. Uh, Jeff Kacharski is uh, one of the co-authors of this paper for the McDonald laurier Institute. He's a senior fellow at the Institute, also an adjunct professor at Royal Roads University. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.